0: hurst says i'll drink to that again that, yeah. the drinking gets sad as i said <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am
0: Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Welcome back, everybody. We're excited to have you. We're excited to be talking about another great script. In this case, a script from one of the hollowed theater makers of the past
1: 100 years or so. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely like one of uh kind of a living or was a living legend until quite recently. Um uh and uh kind of wrote just tons of plays that were done across genres, done by like some of theater's greats as well, like wrote wrote roles that uh the, the the great actors of theater could inhabit well. Um we're talking about Harold Pinter's play, No Man's Land today.
0: Yes, of course No Man's Land has has recent prominence in our world. Uh we may- May even be sort of behind the eight ball on its recent prominence in some ways. Uh, uh, Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen, of course, did a just renowned production of No Man's Land that was seen in lots of different contexts, including in rep with their waiting for Godot um, on in in London. So this this play uh, is sort of on the the forefront of theater makers' minds right now and some ways because of that incredible production, there are just scintillating interviews with them and with the other two cast members Forehander uh, about the process of making the show about how they interpret Pinter about their friendship in both of course Godot and No Man's Land the the, the two older gentlemen are the two principal characters and the having a friendship while you play these characters opposite each other I mean there's just fascinating stuff out there I could have listened to it for hours and hours and hours more than I did, which was already too many hours listening to the two of them talk about these characters.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, it's a fascinating production. Uh, You're kind of getting a glimpse into the context right now, but it was like they started it in 2013 um, and they did it on Broadway and rep with Goodell, but then it came back to the UK in 2016. So the two of them got to live in those roles for a long time. That production is also uh, kind of, is recorded on the National Theatre Live uh, recordings. So if you get the National Theater at Home subscription or anything like that, you can see this play there uh, with Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart in those roles. So, so yeah, super, super fun that it's kind of had a very recent resurgence and entered the, the uh, sort of uh, broad world of theater awareness again.
0: Yeah, I, d- I don't think you'll tell this story in your context. So I doubt I'm stealing from you, but if I am, I apologize. Patrick Stewart, in some of the interviews, talks about when he was a, a young man and he saw the original production of No Man's Land, which would have been about, what, about 50 years ago. And he he was so captured by it that he went back to see it three more times this week. And across several interviews, I heard him tell this same story over and over again, which is awesome to hear the different ways he tells the story. But he always says this the punchline almost the same way every time, which is like, and I would have gone a fourth time if I could have afforded it. Right. <laughs> and so he had decided... like. Like As a young man, that he was going to do this play. He really wanted to do it. Of course, if you're a young person wanting to do the show, you want to play the Foster Briggs characters. But then he didn't get to it until he's now an older gentleman, Uh, and so he ends up playing Hearst in the production, and uh, the uh, formidable Ian McKellen plays Spooner, which if you don't know the play, that doesn't mean anything to you. You'll learn about it soon. But boy, what a good casting, huh?
1: Yeah, what a good cast. And then then a funny kind of uh uh uh, uh parody to that story is Ian McKellen saying that uh, in one of the interviews I watched of his was like um, this, this was, of the, I don't normally keep a, pl- a list of plays that I want to be in, but I do sometimes keep ones that I don't want to be in. And No Man's Land for a long time was yeah. on that list. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of fun to he have. He was, like, worried
0: it was too British <laughs> for Americans. Right. Like, that's such a great concern. And then <laughs> yeah, Patrick definitely. Stewart talks about how, like as Ian McKellen delivers some of the jokes of the plays, these really British jokes, yep. he just delivers it in like kind of comic timing. And so Americans <laughs> laugh at it even even as we're like, I don't really know what that means, but I bet it well, was I, funny. I can tell it's funny. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. So so lots, lots of exciting, just kind of the 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 uh sort of people who are drawn to Pinter's plays and especially No Man's Land, but excited to kind of jump into the themes of the play as well as we begin our conversation.
0: Yeah, this should be a really fun one. Before we get there, we want to invite you to head on over to our Patreon page. Our Patreon is how we are able to keep the podcast alive and running, a weekly podcast that goes the vast majority of the year, every year is a major project to keep up. And even if we just had the free time sitting around to do it, you know, without worrying about it, there are still financial costs to running a podcast that would get in our way. Um, and and Jackson and I, not being people of incredible wealth, could not do this without the support of those folks over on Patreon. We are supported by our Patreon folks. They, they make Doing this possible. So if that's not you yet, if you're not somebody who's checked that out and has thought about supporting the podcast, I just want to encourage you to go look over there. Patreon.com slash no script podcast. That's all one word, no hyphens or anything. Patreon.com slash no script podcast. You become a supporter over there. There's different monthly tiers that you can join. The lowest tier, the tier that we really would like everybody to at least seriously consider if you're a regular listener, is the $1 a month tier. A dollar a month is super high helpful to us. It really makes the running of the show possible. Um, and we've got lots of dollar a month supporters that that are, are, are fantastic folks at that level. There's, of course, higher levels if you can afford more. That's absolutely wonderful. Uh, but that dollar a month tier, very affordable and very helpful to us. So please consider it. Of course, there are benefits that you can check out over there, not the least of which is getting a sort of forewarning of what scripts are coming up on the podcast, besides the way that we release them just weekly. Um, And then there's other stuff over there that you can check out if you want to log in. To our Patreon supporters that are currently supporting us, thank you so much. Again, you make doing this possible. It would not be able to happen without your help. If you haven't checked it out yet, please do patreon.com slash podcast.
1: And now back to the script. All right, we're gonna jump in and just give a little bit more context um, uh, uh, about this this play, uh, and and a l- just a little bit about Harold Pinter. We've done Pinter on the podcast before. We did uh, the birthday party uh, a couple seasons back, and we gave you just a little bit of context on him. So I'll I'll, I'll be brief on that. But his his career is storied. Um, he is a very important playwright of the last 100 years, winner of multiple awards just for his work. Um, he's won the Laurence Olivier Award. He's won the Nobel Prize in Literature, a very exclusive playwright club there. Um, and uh, a lot of his plays uh, kind of uh, came out in that sort of uh, 1960s or 50s really is the start of it on through the 70s. But his career spanned all the way up into the 2000s uh, before his uh, passing in 2008. Um, we, as I said, we've talked about uh, the birthday party before, we've talked about the room before, both of those are some of his earlier plays, the birthday party being his second play, which uh, only had eight performances, but got very great critical acclaim and kind of brought him into the spotlight. No Man's Land is a 1975 play, um, and that uh, kind of uh, first production was at the Old Vic in London in April of 1975, um, uh, but then it had uh, subsequent productions as well after that. That that original uh, production, uh, there's some stories from, again, uh, Ian McKellen and Stuart about going to see that production, um, and and also uh, one of them, a story around the, the two main actors, I think uh, Ralph Richardson and John uh ex- excuse me Gilgard I believe um being offered the roles of 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 another one of Pinter's plays and wanting to get back into this one. So uh so uh, the kind of fun that they that 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 they've kind of come around to this play again. But then that production was uh transferred to Wyndham's Theater in uh, that same year 1975. It was revived in 1992 interestingly with Pinter playing the role of Hearst, who is a central character and uh, will lead I'm sure some of our conversation towards wondering about the autobiographical nature of this piece and wondering how much Pinter is reflecting on, in fact, his own, uh, fame and life. Um, but then, uh, That production was transferred to the Comedy Theater in February of 1993, and then it got another revival in 2001. Again, Pinter's hand on this piece. He directed that particular production in 2001, which was only seven years before he died. So Pinter was around this piece a lot from its inception um, and and, kind of continued with it along. As we mentioned, of course, before, very notably within the last couple years, 2013, uh, the production at Berkeley Rep, um, which uh, starred Ian McKellen, Patrick Stewart, Billy Crudup, and Shuler Hensley. Did that show in rep with Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart playing uh, in Waiting for Godot. Um, and then that was transferred over to the UK or rather not transferred, but restaged in 2016 um, and eventually led to that recording by the National Theatre Live and uh, is now uh, able to stream for for a subscription amount on National Theatre Live. Not a sponsor. Wish they were. Um, but uh, oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't but, do a Patreon
0: pitch anymore if we had National Theatre right. Live sponsor. <laughs> if you know somebody that knows somebody and yeah. we, we'll do their whole season. Every season, we'll just
1: do national season. (laughs) We'll just do, yeah, just talk (laughs) about their plays every season. (laughs) But yeah, it's a great play, and and it'll be exciting to see this play, especially with that sort of resurgence and the uh, accessibility of the the stewart and mckellen version of the play just how this play continues to be done and and kind of brought around especially in community houses um for it's a nice little forehander um it's it's all male roles which does kind of limit um its its uh, accessibility in some regional houses um but uh but it is it is certainly able to be done uh with just kind of a one room set and uh kind of engages some really interesting questions around um well, well.
0: Yeah, that'll well, be the
1: content of our conversation.
0: I mean, just to, <laughs> just just briefly echo what you said about it not having many technical requirements. I mean, it's I I think you could probably just do the play with bottles and glasses. Like, I mean, there's yeah. so little required. There's a lot of drinking in the play. Uh, shocker, it's a Pinter play, and there's a lot of drinking <laughs> in it. <laughs> but other than that, I mean, you, there's not really much required. Um, yeah. One more thing, that, that just about the way that you changed the language on transferred versus restaged. I watched one an interview with, uh, and I'm sorry I'm not going to have their names, I feel bad about that, but the two guys that are the uh, younger roles, Foster and Briggs, to Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart's Uh, uh, Hurst and Spooner, uh, I watched an interview with those guys, and they talked about, and this was the pair of actors that were doing it in the UK after the production had been restaged from its Broadway run, and they talked about a really interesting feature, and that has to do with your change of language, which is that they weren't just told, okay, the other guy stood here and said it like this, and then walked in through the door and raised his glass like this. They were able to really take ownership of the characters and, and, and reinterpret what was going on through their sense of self and sense of being actors as somebody who's done watched some broadway productions in in my professional life Uh, put in actors into roles and uh, watched those rehearsals, they are very mechanical and very... um, uh, Now they take a two-second inhale here, and it can't be longer than two seconds. And then you Mm. say this line at exactly this pace and hit exactly these words. I mean, it's it's nothing like you think of when you're doing actor training, when you're just getting inserted into a production. And so I thought it was fascinating to hear how these guys really were able to re-rehearse and re-discover the characters for themselves, rather than just being sort of handed the, uh, uh, here's what the other guys did, and, and this is exactly what we need you to do, because we're just doing this production over again.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and in a play like this, where like it is such a small cast and such kind of an ensemble feel, um, a lot of uh, kind of flow between the characters, I think if, if I'm reading my cast list from the 2016 uh, version correctly, that's Owen Teal and Damian Maloney, yes, um, having them... Yeah, yeah. Having them be able to to jump in and really find the characters anew and get to play with uh, Stewart and McKellen, who have had been living in it for like four years, um, uh, would have been a really vital part of that, I imagine. Well,
0: and, and that No Man's Land production just won all kinds of awards. I mean, people just raved about it. It was really the discovery of that rep. I mean, people love waiting for Godot, or they hate waiting for Godot, one or the other. <laughs> right. One now, of the two. Now, Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen probably do it as good as anybody, right? But the discovery of that rep Rep series was No Man's Land, I think, for a lot of folks. And you can really see that in the reviews and the awards that it was given. That was really the one that people just kind of blew their brains, how how excellent it is. And it's, it's a really engaging, fantastic play. Speaking of which, uh, so I, I got the synopsis today, and it's... <laughs> It's a it's a negotiable synopsis.
1: <laughs> right. There's I, some I mean, inference it seems, that you have to right, do. Right. It's these
0: the kindest way. The facts of what's actually happening <laughs> are in dispute throughout <laughs> right. the course of the play. And so some of what I'm gonna say is interpretation. Uh, it's interpretation that I feel relatively solid about, but it is interpretation. And some of it is like you don't know until late in the play. But in order to describe what's happening, you're going to learn it early. Um, so j- just FYI. So we are in a, a very nice sort of living room, drawing room. That's the setting for this play. Clearly a lot of wealth, nice chairs, nice uh, a nice uh, bar, basically, uh, like a home bar with tons of different kinds of alcohol and such. Very nice, very wealthy. We meet Hurst and Spooner. These are going to be our two principal characters. These are guys in their 60s, really older gentlemen. Across the course of their conversation, what we learn is that Hurst was out drinking, and a guy named Spooner kind of latched onto him while he was out drinking and was invited back to Hearst's house to continue the drinking back at home. Uh, so now, we, of course, we know, I think one thing for solid sure is that it's definitely Hearst's house and <laughs> yes. that Hearst is wealthy. <laughs> Whatever Hearst has done in his life, he's wealthy. In fact, the, the origin of the, like the first two stage directions are just – like, here's how Spooner is dressed in a, a bad-fitting, sort of grungy suit, and here's how Hurst is dressed in a really nicely tailored, very well-kept suit. So really identifying there's a class difference there. Um, and, of course, this being uh, – uh, who is – I think Patrick Stewart said, like or I said earlier, it's a very British, but uh, sure, that yeah, class yeah. difference it really matters. Um, and, and so those are things I think we know for sure, that they've come back from drinking. Now they're drinking at home. Um, so what we learn across the course of the play, now we started to get into the interpretation stuff, is that Hearst is, uh, his wealth and success comes from writing in some fashion. He's a poet, he's a critic, he's an essayist, and of some renown, especially when he was younger. And Spooner, we think, I think, recognizes him in the bar. Spooner himself is a writer, but a much less successful writer. Um, so much so that he does not really have a home. He, he does not really have much money. In fact, one of the other characters that comes in later on mentions that basically he, he's the busboy at this bar. And that's how he got sort of into, uh, sneaking into Hearst. And, um, Hearst is alone. He, he lives a life of pretty much isolation. He has two, uh, Friends, caretakers, manservants, whatever you want to call them. They're the classic pair of menacing side characters from Pinter's play. Exactly the same as every other pair of menacing side characters that you might have met across Pinter's work. This time, they're called Foster and Briggs. And they are these... They're in this triad with Hearst. They take care of him. They do the cleaning. They do the picking up. And they're also fiercely, uh, menacingly protective of Hearst. Um, so across the course of the play, my sense of the, the plot is Spooner is sort of in this long uh, play to get in to Hearst's inner circle. And sort of use this connection that he made at the bar to establish a more secure position for himself. He does that by just sort of constantly going around and around about who he is in relationship to Hearst, what shared memories he and Hearst may have or not have. And he can do this because Hearst, I think, probably, we nowadays would say, has some form of dementia. He's struggling to hold on to the facts of reality. And so Spooner is able to sort of interpret and reinterpret some of those facts and memories for him across the course of the play. Of course, Foster and Briggs are also able to do that to Hearst. And it becomes sort of a back and forth battle over Hearst between Spooner and Foster and Briggs across the course of the play. We don't really know if Spooner and Hearst know each other before the action of the play. Um, They both at various points claim that they do, but for totally different relationships and interactions. Uh, I I suspect probably not, but I I don't know that for sure in any capacity. Um, And uh, so these sort of servant bodyguards that Hearst has end up at the end of the first act locking Spooner in this drawing room overnight um, after Spooner's sort of insistence at how he knows Hurst, all of his attempts to get into Hurst's inner circle, have really distressed Hurst, to the point where he actually at one point crawls out of the room, comes back in a dressing gown, sort of totally befuddled, and these two servant bodyguards, Foster and Briggs, who are much younger, by the way, um, escort Hurst away and lock Spooner in this room overnight. The next morning, Spooner is fed breakfast by the gentleman, um, and Hurst comes back in, sort of full of life and vigor that he was really lacking the night before, and actually, Hurst claims that they They must have known each other back at Oxford. They were old Oxford buddies. They share these memories. uh, But Spooner's version of events is different than Hearst's. um, And they kind of go back and forth about women that they may have cheated with or on. Uh, Neither one of them really... fully embracing the reality that the other one paints. Um, Spooner ultimately tries to undermine Foster and Briggs' relationship with Hearst. They're taking care of him. They're secretarying of him. I just made that a verb. Uh, (laughs) By saying, basically, I can do it better. Um, And then ultimately... Hearst sort of says, you know, you're, you're a total stranger. What are you doing in my house? Um, and Hearst, F. Spooner gives a very long monologue sort of purporting his his virtues. Here's what I can do for you. Here's why I'm the best person to be your new kind of inner circle guy. Uh, and Hearst says that they should change the subject and finally dis- uh, sort of describes that cold winter is coming on and that he, he's going to stay in this, icy, silent, no man's land, um, which is the title of the play. That, that, that metaphor has come up earlier too. All of that is very uh, interpretable, yeah. right? I mean, in, in fact, a lot of what this play has for people and, and why it's generated so much conversation over its 50 some years or, or getting close to 50 years now is that it's, it's this sort of riddle like, what is really going on? There has been as far interpretations as far out as, like, this is a kind of purgatory, and Hearst literally almost did drink himself to death and now is in this kind of purgatory, to as sort of concrete and stable as what Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen described, which is just like Spooner, this bad poet con artist guy trying to make some money and, and a solid life off of this uh, old famous writer who can no longer keep track of the facts of reality due to his dementia.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a very kind of esoteric open for interpretation sort of uh uh um, sort of play. Um there there are some concrete things though, and I think that that uh, that is the sort of a power dynamic of the different characters within it, because I think you described it pretty well. Uh, Cooper, uh, not Cooper, Spooner, is trying to kind of insert himself into what McKellen calls this menage a trois of people, um, who are uh, this this sort of unit of of Foster, Briggs, and Hearst who have this sort of we 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 talked in when we talked about birthday party about Pinter's use of the the uh, theater or comedy of menace. Um, and this sort of like sort of feeling of something's amiss here and it's threatening. it's hard to put your finger on it, um, but but it's kind of floating through and, and flavoring all the interactions. And that sort of triad of of uh, of Hearst Spooner or Hearst Foster and Briggs, um, uh, kind of having that sort of like something's amiss here and Spooner's trying to figure it out and negotiate how he can maybe get in to this without, hurting himself or trying to come out ahead is like a, a it's kind of the negotiation of the stranger comes to town motif
0: and a, and a negotiation of the way that like a lot of Pinters plays there is like a physical battle not not a fight but i mean a battle over a physical space uh this is my this is my guest house on the shore uh right right and 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 so in this play it's much less about the physical space Base, I think it, it it is uh I mean what what is the no man's land do you think
1: yeah yeah I, I I think some of it is just so the way that everyone adapts to Hearst is I think part of the no man's land I'm not exactly sure how to like kind of name it as one thing um but but Hearst has these sort of swings in him that he needs different things at different times at the start of the play um he kind of shows up to spooner's uh frequent talking (laughs) spooner notes at the beginning that that he just is runs his mouth and he and he's glad that hearst is just listening to him because um if two people were running their mouth this much um it just wouldn't work (laughs) um but uh but then later on in the play especially act two so act one ends with uh as you said, Hurst essentially just like crawling out of the room because he's drank so much. Um, but then Act Two, he comes back in just ready to go, and he and there's this interesting negotiation between him and Spooner, where Spooner realizes maybe what Hurst needs is like a foil in, in that feels like his Oxford days. And so you have this sort of weird interaction where they both like claim that they loved each other's wives or girlfriends or friends better than the other. Um, and so you kind of have Spooner trying to negotiate, um, this, this weird ground, uh, where, where, uh, or Hurst needs some sort of care from him, You also have uh, uh, Foster and Briggs negotiating that same ground, Briggs with some more authority and Foster with some more threats, Um, that they're kind of negotiating this space of, no, you have to go on your walk, Mr. Hurst. No, you need to, I'm not going to give you any more to drink, Mr. Hurst. And they're kind of using that sort of um, uh, almost like uh, nurse sort of role or secretary sort of role to kind of negotiate what Hurst needs most in order to advance their own goals.
0: Yeah. Pinter has talked about like, um, let me see if I can find my quote here. He says, we're faced with the immense difficulty, if not the impossibility of verifying the past. I don't mean merely years ago, but yesterday, this morning. What took place? What was the nature of what took place? What happened? What's happening now? That's sort of Pinter's sense. That's a quote from some of his writing about about memory. And memory plays this really important role. And I wonder if memory is some of what the no man's land is. I mean, there are various points. You would think, right, my memory is mine. It's like, it's my ground. I own it. I have safeguards around it. My memory is mine. And I think some of what happens in this play is that Hearst's memory, the sort of collected experiences that he keeps in his brain that define who he is, is literally not his own. It is being reinterpreted by all three of the other characters, most notably by Spooner, because he's the one that we're following in his attempt to uh, establish a position. But uh, Foster and Briggs clearly do it too, and in, that's the it's it's like by grasping and 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 saying. I, I just think that that um, Spooner is. He's sort of he's intruding, right? Into mm, the, mm-hmm. the he makes a no man's land out of Hearst's memory when it should perhaps be his own.
1: Hmm. Yeah. So so in in that way you, you kind of see it as like, perhaps like this was this things were fine before you showed up, Spooner. Um <laughs> like like well, the, the sort of <laughs>
0: I don't think things were fine before Spooner showed up. I mean Hurst seems pretty pretty miserable and lonely. He's He's basically blockaded from the rest of the world by these two guys that I think I think probably these guys, uh, they're not the same as Spooner, but in some ways they are. Because what do we learn about Foster? Foster is also a failed or up he's actually an up and coming poet rather than a failed poet. But you sort of imagine that this may have started in a similar way where some writer was like, I can wield my way into this famous writer's inner circle. And then they get there and they sort of blockade him from the outside world, I would imagine, in part to live in the luxury of his wealth. And so I I don't know that everything was fine before Spooner showed up. Up. I don't know if that's quite accurate. And in fact, I, if it, if that were true, um, I don't know what Hurst, the point of Hearst would be. Actually, like I, I actually think Hearst seems to be genuinely reaching out to find some connection with Spooner. Spooner just keeps bungling it up.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I wonder, I wonder if the everything was fine is more like, especially Briggs's perspective. Like right. Yeah, that's every, true. <laughs> everything was like cruising fine, and then you show up. I almost and I agree with your last thought quite a bit. I, I almost wonder if Hearst didn't like sneak out to this pub, right? Like, like there or are somehow, some lines
0: that would suggest that. They're like the guys sort of react to like you. You mean you went out for a drink? Like what the heck?
1: Yeah hmm Yeah, there's this almost kind of, again, again, the sort of menace of, I feel like, because, like, Briggs kind of serves as this, like, this uh, go-between person between uh, Foster and Hearst, because I think it's Briggs who actually, like, uh, headhunts, essentially, Hearst. Uh, um, Foster into this job he has the, or at least a version of the stories there's so many long stories told about how everyone is inter, interacting with each other but a story that Briggs tells is this uh, scene with him and Foster where he gives him directions essentially and he likes his face so he he like finds him eventually and w- asks him to come back and kind of be this other uh, force <laughs> for him to uh, help uh, 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 be a secretary to Hearst so you have sort of uh, uh, Briggs's worldview of, like, I had this thing working fine, and now this other person is here.
0: Yeah, well, I think both the the the, the guys have a dedicated interest to protecting the status quo. Yeah. And both Hurst and Spooner seem to be wanting... Like, I think they could probably be interpreted as dual protagonists. You know, I I think in, in some ways they are both on this journey to get something out of the other and the the Foster Briggs characters act as sort of an obstacle to both of them because of their their desire to keep things exactly as they are. Spooner is interested in this sort of, uh, you know, establishing a position, a relationship. But I also, one of the things that I think is really interesting about Spooner is where the play ends. So he's, he's gone through these multiple attempts to sort of establish who he is and why Hirsch should trust him and all of this stuff. And finally, at the end, as we talked about, he's got like a three-page monologue where he describes all this great stuff about himself and why he would be there to help Hearst, what a great friend he would be and such. And that does not really cause any reaction. Literally, the stage direction is silence. And then he goes into a longer monologue describing how he wants to get Hearst reading at basically poetry readings and groups again at this bar. And that is what causes Hearst to describe changing the subject. And so I also wonder if Spooner is looking to sort of uh, improve his professional career by playing agent to this famous poet that's not writing or doing anything anymore. And if Hearst is able to sort of at the end, sniff that out, or if it's just mm-hmm. his fear of going out to be vulnerable as a, as a celebrity poet again, or writer, whatever he is.
1: Yeah, I think I think both of those two inter- interpretations would be valid ways to play it because you have I think certainly Spooner is there to figure out some way to advance his situation, um, and but but also I think there's there is some genuine uh, like there's a reason why he doesn't just run away once the door is unlocked in Act Two um, because <laughs> he's, he's, he was locked up for the night there. Yeah, I mean um, he doesn't so. have anywhere to go, right? Like <laughs> yeah, we do, we yeah. get
0: that from him. Like if he's mm-hmm. booted out, there is nowhere for him to go.
1: Yep. Yeah, and and then certainly uh, Hurst's uh reaction to that could be a sniffing out. Also though, he's on this weird journey. There's this line fairly early in the play where he says to Spooner, "Um tonight my friend you find me in the last lap of a race I had long forgotten to run." Um which is power yeah, powerful line. Um uh, but but you have that sort of wondering what 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 exactly is that race? And if it is connection to people then there's like an interesting uh sort of comment about what fame has done to him and how uh the sort of things that like he would have liked to do before have become inaccessible to him and in that way Spooner is kind of offering him some, a way back into that. And then, uh, by, by way of these readings, like he said, I'll promise a full house. You can come and we'll even like find a way to pay you. You could come and be, a uh, be this sort of person again. And, and then the choice of Hearst's to refuse that, to change the subject is, is again, a sort of a wandering around the commentary of, this is this is how far I've fallen away from that. It's too scary. Don't want to re-engage in that way. I've forgotten how to run that race
0: and and that that last lap of the race he's forgotten to run line comes just after they have this another one of these sort of things where it it, it depends on if you believe Spooner has any connection with this guy whatsoever before the action of the play. I'm not sure he does, but he claims to know about. Hearst's uh, wife, basically. Hearst describes, or, or partner, that he was connected with for a long time that had these hazel eyes, is how you sort of get to know her. But she left him. And Spooner makes this into sort of a, you know, I I don't think you're he I think the, the the tactic is to sort of attack Hearst for that, so that Hearst will come to him for comfort. Basically, you're not a man, you didn't do the right thing, this is your fault, and then he sort of dr- sort of draws Hearst back in. Now that was a mistake on Spooner's part because Hearst shuts right down. But that that line comes after this description of of Hearst losing his his love, you could say, if you want to go the most sort of romantic extreme, like the love of his life. This longtime partner, his wife, whatever, left him. And now this is where he is. Another great Hearst line from later in the play that I think goes a little under the radar. um, He's describing Foster and Briggs. And he describes, what would I do without the two of you? I'd sit here forever waiting for a stranger to fill up my glass. What would I do while I waited? Look through my album, make plans for the future. My friends later, this is a few lines later, he says, my true friends look out at me from my album. And this is like a photo album from when he was a young man and had all these friends. I mean, this is a dude who, if if these two like bullies in his life weren't in his life, there would be no one. He would be, his true friends would be in his photo album.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, there's, there's another line somewhere around there around like, do you know what it's like to wake up in the morning and only your furniture greets you? Um, <laughs> like that, you that that you have like this this real sense that despite the fact that you know maybe to an objective person and perhaps <laughs> perhaps Spooner can sometimes be that sort of objective person at least uh, some eye into this kind of triad of people, you can see that there are there are things with uh, Foster and Briggs that are dangerous that are potentially harmful to Hearst, and yet Hearst maintains this relationship at least partially because. To be alone is awful um to for for him and and he's and he's so alone now whether it's because of personal choices or because of the outcome of his uh outcome of his fame or outcome of of uh his uh focus on his work rather than his relationships we don't really get into that too much in the play but for some reason he is very alone and that a- aloneness a lot of
0: people say he's an alcoholic I mean, he drinks enough in the play to justify that for sure, but that that might be the thing that both ruined his career and his relationships is his constant drinking. That's an interpretation, but that that's a common interpretation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like this, this play swings at the same plate as O'Neill in terms of like using alcohol as an inhibition remover. <laughs> like it's like to that to that degree. Um, well, they I show know, up-
0: It's interesting, though, because, you in, in know, Neil, a lot of the time, I don't know that you get the same negative outlook on alcohol as like I do think in oh, this true. play, the drinking gets sad. I mean, it doesn't start sad. But it gets sad by the yeah, end of the definitely. play. The amount of alcohol that they're consuming. But it is so. It's interesting though because you're describing this. Hurst uh, is, is 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 so isolated and alone, desperate for any kind of connection. That he he you know brings this guy home from the bar, just some stranger, right. the the bus boy basically, a sixty year old bus boy. But but that the end of the play is Hurst deciding to stay in isolation. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. think there is a reading of the end of the play where Spooner gets his goal. I mean, Hurst, the, the last two lines, Spooner says, you're in no, this is after Hurst has not, uh, has totally shut down Spooner's attempts. The last two lines, Spooner, he says, you're in no man's land, which never moves, never changes, which never grows older, but which remains forever icy and silent. Hurst says, I'll drink to that. Again, that, yeah. the drinking gets sad, as I said.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's all like kind of uh, moved toward or or he's he is kind of uh, pushed in that direction by Briggs and uh, Foster again, because after after Spooner's um, monologue, he's he's kind of done talking until that last line about no man's land. The next like two pages after that long monologue where he ch- makes his pitch is uh, Hearst kind of walking the road towards that last statement of of, of uh, just the sort of, uh, yeah, loneliness of this and Briggs and Foster short- sort of throwing in little guiding things along the way. It's
0: great the way the language works. So Spooner has that long monologue. It ends with him sort of proposing that they get Hearst back on the poetry circuit or whatever. And Hearst says, uh, let's change the subject or something to the effect of that. And then there's a hole in classic Pinter style. They have a whole probably four pages about the what the language means about changing the subject yeah and foster and briggs it's totally about tactics and goals right because the conversation itself is sort of nebulous and and almost silly almost absurd about what changing the subject means but what is really going on is foster and briggs are saying you change the subject that's it it's over we're not going right. back. You said he has to leave. He has to leave. This is now we've won. We are not going backwards ever. So even though the conversation itself is a little bit, let's even call it sort of empty, the the, the discussion is about the English language. Right. The tactics, the goals, what's going on underneath it, the subtext is so brilliant and character-based and enticing.
1: Yeah, yeah. The the way that it kind of weaves over and over each other, The there's there's a series of lines where it's like, what is the subject? The subject is we're not changing the subject. Oh, and the subject can never be changed because we're never changing the subject, and thus we are always talking about the subject never changing. Um, so <laughs> so <laughs> you kind of get this like snarl and rat's nest sort of uh, 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 trap, really, or maybe not trap, but like a web that they're sort of weaving or a hypnosis that they're sort of weaving around Hearst um, that 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 kind of draws him further and further away from the possibility that Spooner will kind of release him from them.
0: No, absolutely, I totally agree. I, I want to make a comp for this play that occurred to me as I was preparing, uh, and I hadn't thought about it before. I think this play, in some ways, reminds me of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. In Ooh. the same way that in that play, some of what is going on is a sort of I dare you to uh, pop the bubble. I dare you this, this story that we're telling together about our shared life, George and Martha, I've top of my head. I think those are the characters names. Uh, they're, they're sort of sh- this, like we're telling this, this fictitious memories that we have about our fake child spoiler alert the child's not real
1: uh (laughs) (laughs) weren't expecting to get that spoiled Uh, you?
0: (laughs) they're sort of dare like the, the some of the play is this sort of test of we have this story who's gonna break it first are we going to break it can we in fact hold on to the story long enough to keep everything fine and dandy and that, I think, happens in this play. But rather than being this long extended version of it, it you have sort of three... I do think there are three... Three separate stories that are told that then this sort of test, like, can we keep this false narrative going long enough for their, for something genuine to happen in the midst of everything false? I mean, that's what happens in Virginia Woolf, right? There's something genuine they're searching for in their marriage, even amidst this web of lies that they spin as a way to find the genuine thing. And that, that happens in this play. Hurst comes into the room three times. And each time, it's a question of, like, amidst this thing that we're going to try, we're going to create a a relationship for each other between us that's not real, I don't think. I don't think any of them are. Uh, The most obvious one is the Oxford buddies at the end. It's like, can we find a genuine connection for us that will satisfy us both amidst the falsity?
1: Yeah. To the the point that he will prolong even the derailing moments of it when whenever the fiction a fictional relationship or that maybe fiction is whenever the the given circumstances that they've chosen to establish <laughs> draw him into uh, uh either feeling insulted or like it's not working he'll he'll still re engage it there's a great uh set of lines where um i think it's in the oxford um fiction <laughs> uh where where eventually they get to the point that uh spooner kind of outplays him in terms of who he knows and who he loved better Um, and he kind of stands up and says you've insulted me so resoundingly and he goes to the door and says Foster pour me a whiskey and soda (laughs) (laughs) rather than rather than kick this person out, throw him out of my house, it's Uh we're going to reset and kind of go into this some more. So you have the sort of yeah, you have that sort of like uh, Hearst continually re-engaging with the hope that we're going to kind of come at this from another angle that maybe will spark something.
0: Well, and, and Hearst also he's got a great line, too. He says there are places in my heart where no living soul has or can ever trespass. And that's another Mm. line that I think perhaps goes a little under the radar, but is maybe crucial to understand what Spooner does wrong three times over. I mean, each time, I I think for the play to be engaging and and make sense at all, Hurst has to be genuinely trying to reach out. This isn't just Spooner trying and getting roadblocked to establish a relationship. Each time that Hurst tries to build a bridge, a connection out of the icy, silent no man's land to Spooner, Spooner messes it up. And I think yeah. what he's messing up is that they're, they're, he he, try, he goes too far. He gets too intimate in their connection too quickly, and the House of Cards has to sort of crumble apart, right? The Oxford buddy sings, well, we're old friends. Did you know this gal you were married to a while back? I actually had an affair with her, Hurst says. It's sort of a, it's played off in this sort of joking, casual style. But Spooner then, he just goes too far. And then right. he starts to say a <laughs> bunch of stuff about Hearst and who he might have slept with and how he did that to the same thing to her, but he was also cheating on her with a different girl. And it just it goes into that place in Hearst's heart where no living soul can ever trespass. And the mm-hmm. gates get shut down again.
1: Yeah, which then provides the opportunity for uh for Briggs, especially and Foster to step in and be like, no, 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 no. we figured this out. We've had this for a longer time. Um and you kinda yeah, you get the you get the sort of um Oh, it's, 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 it's not, it's like the traveling salesman trope in Spooner, right? This person, it's a little, it's a little bit, um, uh, like Music Man-esque. This person who is willing to adapt and change and, and can do it pretty well, but then eventually like gets a little too far. Um, and, and, uh, in this case, I think ends up, Although, I mean, he kind of ends up like you you get the sense that the conversation is over at the end of the play, though. There is not like a firm like you kind of almost get the get the idea, too, that this could continue in perpetuity, like give it give it two more drinks and they'll be on another (laughs) different tangent. But
0: I do think what what changes what causes the end of the play, I think, is Spooner's monologue. I think he lays his cards on the table. The the game sort of, right? It's sort of like the end of Virginia Mm, Woolf where George finally just pops the bubble and says what's really going on. And I think Spooner does that at the end of the play. I think the long monologue, the cards get laid on the table. He just says, I want a position with you. I'm a great guy. I'll be a great secretary, bodyguard type person. Oh, and I also have this other dream where I rekindle your career and I get the renown for bringing back this famous writer into the limelight. And when he lays his cards on the table, the game of let's find a way that we've had a friendship all along by reimagining, reinterpreting our memories suddenly can't go forward. I mean, it, it, it would be almost impossible for them to do this again after Spooner has said that monologue, I think.
1: Uh, yeah. I, so I super agree, especially the way um, uh, S- Spooner, Spooner has revealed so much of himself that doesn't seem to be the way he likes to operate in the world. Um, he likes to kind of have that degree of subterfuge. Um uh, so so I so I agree that Spooner, I think, would have a hard time engaging it. I I wonder though, like Hurst seems to be able to constantly reinvent his situation. <laughs> I think he's the part that will continue to reach out unless he, like, eventually dies. Like, it's it's kinda like this we're watching the sort of throes of his life as he tries to negotiate dying um and trying to figure out a way figure out a way to make it different. And I think he he will keep trying to. I don't get the sense that he's done trying, um, but he's just running out of time.
0: Well, it's one of the things that is... Complicated about Pinter's work is because we often have such little context for the characters. Yeah, we're we're very we're very often left to sort of imagine the stakes for the characters for themselves. What's never lacking in Pinter's work is stakes. I mean, clearly every encounter a Pinter character ever has is like the most important thing they've ever done. Very, and rainy. you're never sure why <laughs> because you never know much about these guys. Uh, right, and 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 that is true in this play too. I mean, for for whatever's going on, it's crucial for both of these guys. Now you learn that about Spooner actually in a way I don't think you do about a lot of of Pinter's characters. In Spooner, I think you legitimately learn he like would go hungry and sleep on the street if he does, this is sort of his last ditch effort to have any kind of life for himself. And so uh, with Hearst, you're sort of left to imagine a little bit. And so I wonder if this, uh, his sort of escape from under the watchful eyes of his bodyguards to get to this bar is his last ditch effort. Like, is there a way out for me from the icy, silent, no man's land where nothing happens and I'm alone and Mm. that that's the stakes, right? This is my last chance. This is my last effort. And he's, you know, he's getting old. These guys have total control over every part of his life. And this was his chance, and it happened to be with this guy who couldn't just keep his mouth shut for five minutes <laughs> right. in Spooner and ruins everything by just talking too much. <laughs>
1: Uh well we are about at the end of our time for this show. This show has uh, like just so much electricity in it. As uh, as I think we said just a couple minutes ago, there's so there's clearly stakes happening. There's big stuff happening in these characters' lives in each of the characters' lives too. Like we didn't re- like there's something there's surely something going on with Briggs away from here that he's doing all this for. There's Surely something going on with Foster, but we spend the most time with Hurst and Spooner. Yeah, they have so. some
0: kind of relationship where like yeah. Briggs- Helped foster. I mean, this is at least one of the stories they tell. Again, the stories people tell are sort of up for grabs if if they're true (laughs) at all. But uh, they have some sort of previous relationship to this that goes again, sort of without any context. It's hard for us to grab what that, how that would influence what they're caring about here.
1: Which means that these, this play you can go and see it and it'll be two different plays. Not two different full plays. But like the sort of interpretive steps that a crew can make on this play is is are, are, are all over the place. They're really robust. It's a great play that kind of welcomes in a team to it. So we'd love to keep talking about it. We are out of time on this podcast, but we'd love to keep talking with all of you out there. If you have been in this play, seen this play, watched the National Theater at Home version of the play or read it, want to have someone to talk about it with, we are great people for that, and so is everyone on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, which you can find at the username at no Podcast. We also have a Gmail, Podcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We would love to keep talking about No Man's Land with you.
0: Absolutely. If you've liked this conversation or any of our other conversations, we encourage you to pass us along to your family, your friends, your colleagues, anybody you know that likes the theater, that likes storytelling, that likes acting, or, or even movies, anything that is sort of In this vein of of looking at how stories are told by performance artists together, uh, send them our way, and I think they'll enjoy the podcast. They can find us on Podbeam, where we're hosted, but more easily on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or YouTube. And you can also like us on Facebook where, you know, if you don't want to have to go and search things out, if you got a less technologically savvy person in your life, they got a Facebook, they like us on Facebook. Every Monday the link appears and they can click it and it'll play. That's a great way to just stay updated with us there.
1: So until next week when we're talking about another of theater's best scripts, I am
0: Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the Podcast.